0: This week's TribCast is sponsored by Effective. 74% of voters say TV advertising is most likely to get their attention. See how you can reach Texas voters today. Download our ebook at EFFECTV.com slash political. And Guns.com, Texas dove hunting is right around the corner. Shop Guns.com for all your guns and ammo needs.
1: Hello, and welcome to the August 5th edition of the Texas Tribune TripCast. This is Alexa Uda. I'm joined this week by state politics reporter Cassie Pollock. Hello. Hi. Political reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. Welcome back, Patrick. And managing editor Matthew Watkins, who no longer needs to wear a hat because his hair is coming in nicely. (laughs)
2: thank you alexa
1: all right well this may not be a 100 coronavirus talk free zone but we are going to spend most of today talking about politics let's start with the latest on the presidential front there's been some movement out of the joe biden campaign with first hires in texas as well as some reservations for tv time in the fall patrick Give us a sort of general state of play here this many months out from the general um, in terms of where the Biden campaign or or how the Biden campaign is eyeing Texas.
3: Yeah, they're they're doing what they can so far to show that uh, they consider it a state um, to take seriously Uh, when it comes to these, uh, you know, TV reservations in particular, we're still kind of largely in, in wait and see mode to see how much money exactly they're going to be investing in Texas Uh, which, as we all know, is a, um, you know, vast and expensive state for a presidential campaign uh, to play in, even if they're just playing in in advertising in, you know, some of the big population centers, it's still a pretty expensive uh, proposition. Uh, What they have announced so far is, you know, last month, uh, in the middle of July, they announced that they would be airing their first uh, general election TV ads in Texas. And that was a, a minute long spot where, Biden kind of spoke about the coronavirus situation nationwide, but there was also some kind of specific, some mar- remarks specific to Texas, which was, you know, seeing a spike at the time. Um, that ended up, you know, being a pretty small ad buy. Um, there was one ad tracker that, uh, you know, put it ad about $65,000, which is nowhere near what a presidential campaign would need to spend to to move the needle statewide in Texas. Uh, but it was nonetheless kind of an early, you um, you know, a notable and early investment in the state, even if it wasn't, um, you know, play to win kind of money. Uh, then earlier this week, we saw the the, the Biden campaign announce its first hires in Texas. Um, they announced uh, six different people that they're bringing on board in Texas. Uh, the state director is, uh, is Rebecca Cunha, who's uh, someone who's pretty well known to folks uh, here in Austin around the Capitol and then also in, in Democratic campaigns across the state. Um, The deputy uh, director is Jen Longoria, who was the state director for Elizabeth Warren in Texas during the primary. And there are a number of other uh, pretty prominent names uh, in that team. I I would say is a pretty, pretty, you know, for the first six hires, a pretty, a pretty talented bunch of people who have, um, you know, a lot of recent uh, Democratic political experience in Texas and and people who also have some some experience dating back several cycles. So I think it's a pretty well-rounded wave of initial hires um, you know, that being said, you know, Hillary Clinton in 2016 also had a Texas state director, also had several staffers based in the state um, and focused on the state in, in the final few months. And so, um, you know, I think not necessarily the naming of those hires is uh, as significant for Biden, as is the quality, I think, and the talent that you see on that team, again, in those initial six hires. Um, and then the latest development was this morning, the Biden campaign announced, uh, you know, it's advertising campaign. It's a $280 million reservation across TV and, and digital. That includes $220 million specifically for TV in 15 states. And among those 15 states is Texas, um, which they are not elaborating on how much they're spending uh, per state. Like So there's no state-by-state breakdown that they're providing at this point. So again, it remains to be seen how much real investment Texas is going to get. Um, but again, I think, you know, just looking at things historically, it, it's notable that Texas is even a part of this conversation um, from a presidential campaign at this point in a, in a general election. So, again, largely in kind of wait and see mode on the extent of this investment, whether it's a real genuine play um, to, to actually win Texas in November. Um, but I think we can all kind of uh, acknowledge that just looking at the span of, of recent history, um, it is still notable for for even um you know, a presidential campaign to be making these kinds of public um, acknowledgments uh, of Texas being a part of their strategy at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, when you think back to 2018, I don't think you can ignore sort of the downstream effect the Beto O'Rourke campaign had on some of those lower ballot races. Obviously, it was also the first midterm of a presidency and you had sort of that energy working against Republicans since their guy was the incumbent at the presidential level. But it does seem like there were quite a few House Democrats who benefited, at least from the momentum of the Beto campaign. And Mm -hmm. I'm trying to figure out, you know, are we anywhere in the vicinity of seeing that replicated this year in the Senate race between MJ Hager and John Cornyn? Or does that fall more so on the presidential race? Or does that depend on where spending happens? And can you actually sort of do an apples to apples comparison when you've got players that are sort of very different and obviously a midterm versus a presidential. How do we assess any of this as we sort of try to read the tea leaves for November?
3: You know, I would say, you know, and sometimes I, the, sometimes I think this is like, you know, we, we only talk about it as like enthusiasm coming from the top of the ballot on bound. I, I would honestly tell you that I feel this cycle in Texas, you from some of these U.S. house races in particular, like they are their own centers and nuclei of enthusiasm and money and energy. Uh, where the top of the, you know, having a strong top of the ticket on the Democratic side is certainly helpful. Um, but if you look at some of these U.S. House races that are being targeted right now, um, the, the money and the popular, you know, kind of like grassroots support is, is already there. And you see it on, on both sides, too. But obviously, right now, Democrats are, are kind of on the march. Um, so, you know, I would argue that, you know, yes, having a strong top of the ticket in the U.S. Senate race or in the presidential race certainly helps these these U.S. House races, um, but I think some of them have become their own kind of drivers of turnout, uh, you know, on their own based on the strength of, of the races that are being run. Um, I think where you're going to have more of that, um, you know, uh, up ballot uh, effect is on some of these state house races where there's certainly a lot of enthusiasm and strong fundraising going on by Democrats. Um, but they may just be a little more off the radar, and maybe a little more dependent uh, on the performance at the top of the ticket
2: yeah I mean, I think to me the the beto for Democrats of 2020 is Donald Trump. I mean, that's really the guy who's going to get a lot of people out excited um, and, and wanting to go to the polls. Um, and you know, and I also think about the beto factor. I mean, it's it's kind of unquestionable that he had a unique among Texas Democrats ability to get people excited and and fired up and activated and things like that. But I also think there was something that maybe we discount a little bit about that race in 2018 was just how much of that excitement was also driven by Democrats like feeling like for the first time in a long time they have a chance, you know? And, you know, whether that's be- because of Beto, um, you know, it, it's it, part of, of it's because of Beto because of the movement he brought along, but also part of it's just because they were looking at the polls and seeing, like, wow, you know, we've been dormant in this, you know, state for the past century or, you know, dur- not the past century, during this century. And and now, like, you know, my vote might actually matter and things like that. And, you know, I think the, the Trump effect, you know, both because of how um, excited he makes people on both sides of the aisle, but also... Because, you know, like if you just do kind of a blind item look at the state right now, you look at the polls, you look at the fact that there was a statewide Senate race two years ago that was, you know, a pretty narrow margin. You know, if you just like take Texas out of it, you would look at that and say, like, this is a competitive state. And, and so, you know, all those factors, I think, will will serve to get the Democratic Party excited and get the electorate excited. Whether that's enough for you know Biden to win, I think is a, a very open question. Um, but but I think the excitement is there.
1: Yeah, I mean one of the things that seems to be at least uh, at a closer reach on the table is obviously control of the Texas House. But also, you know, the, the freshman House Democrats who flipped seats in 2018 to help narrow the margin leading into this presidential had something that the 2020 hopefuls will not with the elimination of straight ticket voting. You know, Hager will benefit from being right under the presidential congressional hopefuls and competitive districts will be fairly high up on the ballot, but if we think about the dependency on the Biden campaign doing well in some of these sort of competitive House races, it, it feels like we we don't really know we, we we don't have a clear sense of what the elimination of straight ticket voting will mean for a lot of these other lower ticket races. And Cassie, I, I'm curious, you know, what is the House Democrat strategy here if it has materialized yet, right? Like is there a version of a bloat Vote blue all the way down, even if it means you have to select your preference on every individual race. That's that's not as snazzy on a billboard or a campaign ad as campaigns for straight ticket voting might have been. Yeah. I mean, I, it, tough to say. I don't really
4: have probably the, the most up to date sense of like what their clear strategy is. It's just has been pretty continuous, like across the board, like raise money, field candidates for all of these races, make sure that, um, these candidates that are running are like easily distinguishable from the Republicans currently in office, and you know, make sure that they have a lot of money and backing behind them. Um, I, I don't know, Patrick, have you heard a bunch of talk about straight ticking, ticket voting at these state, um, state house races? Um, I know it's just yeah. kind of like a huge question mark still for everybody because it'll be our first cycle without it, but.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think this, I mean, this is a very general uh, take, but I I think that this puts uh, more of an emphasis on, you know, on running very strong coordinated campaigns at the county level, especially in places like Dallas County and Harris County, where you're going to have incredibly long ballots um, that you no longer can punch through with, with, you know, with uh, one option, with straight ticket voting. And so I think, um, you know, this current environment um, puts the onus or, or ramps up I don't want to say the pressure, but um, makes it more important for there to be robust coordinated campaigns that are getting out the word about all the candidates in these um, urban counties that are going to have very long ballots that no longer um, can be quickly, um, you know, gotten through with straight ticket voting.
2: Yeah, I also wonder whether the coronavirus makes this even harder for people, you know, because, um, you know, in 2018, you know, one of the ways that Beto really helped down ballot was he would invite the state house candidate or the, you know, congressional candidate or whatever on the stage to him where all the kind of adoring Beto fans were. And, you know, they would get their five minutes or, you know, 10 minutes or whatever to give their stump speech. And then maybe, you know, when you're in the ballot, uh, uh, you know, casting your ballot, you're, you're going down that list and you're like, Oh yeah, I remember that guy. He was there when I went to go, you know, uh, adore Beto at the thing. And, you know, that's just like not really an option anymore. Biden's not going to be coming down here given you know, stump speeches and, you know, even Beto, I think would have been out there right now. And uh, now you're just like hoping people jump on Zoom calls and everything. And it's a little bit harder to kind of get your name out there. You can't um, I mean, you can't I guess you can. But I think there are a lot of Democrats who are not going to be, you know, going knocking on doors because of the virus and everything like that. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm curious to see how much that will hurt. Like, you know, there's When you're down ballot, you know, one of the ways is to kind of get voters elsewhere and kind of put yourself in front of them. And that's a lot harder to do when you can't be out and about.
1: Yeah. And I think one of the other question marks that we haven't really talked about is if we do see an increase in voting by mail for the general, what do those ballots look different when someone can sit down at their kitchen table and research every single race as they're filling it out because they're not in a ballot, you know, they're not in a voting place. They're not trying to get out as quickly as possible because they're worried they could get infected by the person standing next to them. It It is sort of dynamic to voting that we haven't had before that I don't think we've, it's, it's just one of the other unknowns going into this. We know so little about voting behavior to begin with. We've never had this level of voting by mail and, and there's no way to know how it's going to play into whether people get down the ballot more so than they would have had they gone in person. All right, well, before we move on, we've got two more sponsors to go
0: to. Texas Association of Community Colleges. Texas Community Colleges provide pathways for all Texans to advance to the next level. We are accessible, affordable, and relevant. Visit TACC.org. And... Global philanthropist Melinda Gates will kick off an exciting lineup at the Texas Conference for Women on October 1st. Tickets are now on sale. Visit txconferenceforwomen.org.
1: So something that won't affect November, but will play a role in the legislative landscape lawmakers come back to after the election is the census. We learned this week that the Census Bureau is cutting counting short by a month, moving its deadline to respond to the census up to September 30th from October 31st. This is, you know, pretty bad news for Texas where the response rates so far paint a, a pretty unfortunate picture when it comes to the undercount we, could, we can expect. Some figures for you all, and not even three out of every five households in Texas have responded to the census. As of Monday, just one county had met its response rate from 2010. Less than 10 percent of cities had reached that marker and response rates were lower in census tracts with that had more Hispanic residents or more people living in poverty. When we think about Texas Republicans rejecting proposals to put funding toward getting a complete count, you know, obviously there was no way to know the pandemic was coming and that it could, that it would affect counting in the way it has. But do we, do we think they're regretting that decision now as we face these numbers this many months (laughs) into the count? Or will that regret come in December or next year when we learn that we won't be getting that third congressional district that we were supposed to gain as a result of this?
2: I mean, if, if that's the outcome, I'd, I would think there would definitely be some regret. Um, I mean, do you, how realistic, Alexa, do you think that is that 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 third uh, you know seat wouldn't wouldn't come as a result of this?
1: I mean, you know, in the 2010 census, the Bureau said that Texas was undercounted by about 1 percent. And we're talking about 25 million people. If you think about the size of our districts, I can't remember the exact size that they were drawn to be in after the 2010 census. But I don't think it takes much more than a 1 percent undercount to get there. And at this rate, we are nowhere near where we were in 2010 in, in a lot of these communities. And when you think about cutting the work short by a month, I don't know that the prospect of the undercount being smaller than 1% is is actually there. And when you when you actually consider how far behind we are in some places, you know, I th- there's, there's one analysis out of Texas A&M so far that at the rate that we're going, um, we will have an undercount larger than what would equal one congressional district of those three that we were supposed to gain. I mean, the math is kind of weird, right? Because everyone, every state gets a congressional district and then you sort of add up from there. So we don't fully know. But I don't think it's unlikely at this point that we will lose that one seat. You
3: know, yeah, so I think from a, <laughs> from a political perspective, given, given the trajectory that, you know, Texas Republicans are on for the number of seats they could lose in the delegation this November you think that uh, it would be in their self-interest to to maximize their their potential gains uh, in redistricting because they're going to want to be gaining back some of that ground.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to consider where they would draw. If we do gain two districts, where do you draw those? Obviously, that depends on who has control. Sure. Is yeah. a seat drawn during a regular session <laughs> or in federal court, um, but, but uh, you know, the the idea of missing out on that district doesn't, it's not just like, a, okay, we lose one district, we only gain two instead of three. I, I, I do think it'll play out in how we end up giving people up and where those, where the undercount is felt the most. And, you know, obviously, if you have an undercount among Hispanics and poor people, that's going to, you know, generally benefit Republicans in some of their areas. But the the idea of this undercount, when you're thinking about, fighting for federal funding in a post-pandemic world, We saw the leverage of the congressional delegation post-Harvey. And I think having three extra seats would probably make a difference for folks who want to sort of leverage that political clout in Congress, I would think.
2: Yeah, you know, and some of that funding is also distributed, you know, based on population. So if you're undercounting that way, you're losing out on funding uh, in that regard as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the fallouts of extending counting because of the delays and complications from the pandemic was that we weren't gonna get redistricting data until after the regular legislative session was over. Uh, you know, lots of questions about do you you have to draw a congressional map because you're gonna gain at least one UC. What does that mean for the legislative maps? Now with this this shorter timeline. It seems like we may actually be getting this data before the end of the regular session is over, whatever that is going to look like. But, you know, we're going into session at a time where we're not having the field interim hearings that we were supposed to have ahead of redistricting. We don't actually know how session is supposed to work or how long members will be in session. And it feels like, I'm not sure that things have ever felt so uncertain ahead of redistricting, which is already kind of an uncertain exercise to begin with, because you don't get the data even halfway through the session. But I'm sort of at a loss to kind of come up with a comparable uh, sort of precursor to redistricting than than the one we're in, particularly as we consider what the session could even look like.
2: Yeah, and not even to mention that You know, there's going to be a massive budget shortfall that's going to have to be closed, and you know, they're going to have to figure out what to do about education funding and all the other stuff, and possibly the first time having a split, uh, uh, you know, split chambers in a long time. So. Yeah, I I feel like every time we we start talking about this, we all start to panic a little bit about what what the first half of 2021 is going to look like.
1: (laughs) Well, speaking of the first half of 2021, I mean, in the last week, we learned that both a member of Congress and a member of the Texas House had tested positive for the coronavirus. I am trying to imagine how the latter would have gone had we been in the middle of a legislative session. Uh, Cassie, you spoke with State Rep. Tony Tinderholt, who was infected with the coronavirus. What did you hear from him? And, and what have you heard from other members? You know, have we seen any reactions or heard chatter about how this plays into session? Yeah.
4: Yeah. So uh, I connected with uh, State Representative Tony Tenderhol in Arlington, Republican last week after. Um, uh, you know, just hearing from different people that uh, he was indeed the the first known member of the legislature to have tested positive for it. And, um, you know, what he told us is that he actually came down with a pretty serious, you know, uh, with pretty serious symptoms. He, uh, you know, had to get checked into the hospital. Um, I think he, when we spoke to him on Friday, he was on day 18 of the virus. He says that he has lost um, 18 pounds since first testing positive for it. Um, and all of this was made worse by a titanium aortic heart valve that he has. I oh, wow. I pronounced that correctly. Um, but you know, he said that he and his family, his family also tested positive, uh, for the virus. They had lesser or they, they had more mild symptoms. Um, you know, he said that they wore masks everywhere, um, uh, when they went out in public. So he wasn't exactly sure how he had necessarily con- contracted it. And, you know, even after, uh, after having to, to weather the symptoms and whatnot, he, you know, was, was pretty adamant and, uh, remaining critical of, of the govern of the governor and other state leaders who have, uh, re- you know, and, in how they have responded to the virus by, you know, shutting down, uh, various businesses and parts of the economy in an attempt to curb it. So, but I guess this just like all kind of, you know, is, is a reminder that this, uh, is, is still very much going to be at the forefront of, of the next legislative session. Um, nobody, uh, in either the house or Senate really has a clear, uh, game plan for, um, the logistical side of things, um, in terms of what, uh, precautions people can be taking members, staff, uh, there's been some, you know, ideas tossed around about, you know, installing plexiglass um among uh, you know, uh, house desks on the house floor. Um, you know, they've put a couple trial runs like in the House Appropriations Committee and whatnot, but no like formal adoption of anything, um, at least during the interim. Um, I think house members were surveyed last week um about uh, their thoughts and feelings over like what should be done. So um just to add to everything else that uh you and Watkins and Svitek are talking about in terms of uncertainty, this uncertainty, uncertainty that this is definitely uh, can be added to the list.
3: What what I think is like a a notable, if, if not just obvious, contrast between this issue in Congress and this issue in the Texas legislature is obviously Congress is in session. It's not a part time legislature like the Texas legislature is. There's constantly a public spotlight on these members. People like at least Republican uh, House Republicans are getting tested when they go to the White House, that kind of thing. Um, and so it's much more of a conducive environment for learning if a member of the body has tested positive or you know has some kind of medical uh, you know issue stemming from this. Whereas with the Texas Legislature, everyone's home in their districts now in you know very different parts of the state that are all, you know experiencing the, the uh, outbreak in, in very different ways in some cases. And so um, the extent to which this could be impacting members of the Texas legislature at this very moment is probably less ascertainable than it is in Congress, where, again, you just have a brighter public spotlight. They're in session, Um, you know, like someone like Tinderholt, like you only really know, um, you know, if they publicly volunteer it or, you know, a reporter reaches out. um, There's there's less of, I think, uh, you know, public spotlight forcing them to, to go public with it. Um, that's not to say that I think members of the Texas Legislature are concealing it, but it's just you know just the way that the body you know has been established at the state level, um, it, it makes it you know so there's less of a public spotlight on this, and probably the extent of the problem among members is is just not as well known.
1: Yeah, and we saw this uh, not this exactly play out, but sort of the the clumsiness of trying to legislate in in the middle of all of this when you have to either consider these things or, or not, because, I mean, did the Sunset Advisory Commission meet or try to meet and then gavel out very quickly? I myself was not watching it, but I saw uh, <laughs> some, some reports of it, and it sounded just like a, a pretty clumsy uh, effort when you're sort of, when you, with not a whole lot of precautions.
4: Yeah. So, sunset uh, advisory commission met yesterday and ultimately decided. I, th- I believe it was driven by the senators' side of the commission, not necessarily the House members' side of it. But they did b- basically decided to delay a vote on whether to do um, whether whether to proceed with virtual, in person, or hybrid hearings. Um, and there's no real clear date on like whether they're going to take that up again. Um, at least to my knowledge, I don't know if it's been tabled to the next meeting that they have on the calendar. Um, there was definitely some frustration, especially on the house member side. Um, you know, it's just kind of, again, you know, bringing this into the larger context, the issue that all of these committee hearings, that all these committees, when they hold hearings, uh, the issue facing them isn't necessarily, you know, meeting in person. It's, it's the public testimony part of that. I mean, Alexa, when you were covering the bathroom bill, how many people were in a tiny oh my committee gosh. room piled on top of each other, um, you know? underground at the texas capitol it's
1: yeah and not just the committee room but you know down the staircases and in the cafeteria and in the hospitality room that had been set up for the hundreds of people who had showed up to testify i mean i think when, when you know when you think about the the must do's for session you need to write a budget you need to redraw maps this year. And at a minimum, you need to pass what a safety net bill to keep open the state agencies that are up for sunset review. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if, you know, have we entertained the possibility of just doing that, right? Can we actually do a quick thirty day <laughs> session in and yeah. out? How will we ever survive without those hundreds of resolutions and recognitions on the floor? But it, it seems like it would require some sort of executive order action from Abbott's office, right? I I don't know that the constitution allows for it. isn't aren't there rules for when you can even take up bills? <sighs>
4: There are deadlines in place for, like, when you know the chambers can begin to to consider like bills on the house floor. You know, like when a committee has to pass out a certain type of bill for it to meet particular deadlines. I'm not sure. Is your question like whether Abbott would have to intervene um, to to basically lay the groundwork for the legislature just meeting to pass a budget and do the sunset stuff and then gavel out?
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's even possible.
4: Yeah, I unclear there is definitely like speculation and the suggestion that something like that could happen. Um, you know, especially uh, those
2: not rules that they just vote about on, you know, the first, w- when they select a speaker and kind of go through those process of, of setting the rules ahead of time, you know, in the early days of session,
4: it might be, um, you know, those rules are mainly like laying out like what committee, you know, what committees have, which jurisdictions and, you know whether committees can meet virtually, which the House, uh, you know, that's part of, uh, you know, that's like a barrier that they're kind of having to to grapple with right now. You know, the rules that they passed last session didn't allow for committees to uh, during the interim to meet virtually. So you know, there've been some workarounds around that, and I, you know, I don't know. We'll see if that ends up changing yeah. next it's session. Going to be new-
3: a new House Speaker, too. And if there is a, a Democratic House Speaker, you can guarantee there's probably going to be some real tension about the best way to conduct the session. I mean, we don't you know, yeah. need to speculate. I mean, polling shows us that Democrats and Republicans have just differing views about the seriousness of this problem and how it should upend daily life and, and professional life. And so I think if you have legislative leaders from, from different parties, um, you know uh, trying to make the call on on you know how virtual the session should be how in person it should be what precautions there should be that there's real potential for gridlock there.
1: <laughs> and i mean even within the same party right there's no reason to believe that right, if, exactly. if leadership is gets on the same page about a quick session you know there are members within their own party who would probably mm-hmm. oppose that and fight that so that they could file other sort of legislative priorities for them
3: Risk cocaine could get a haircut in a in a committee room as you know. Acting
1: <laughs> <the plans. laughs> I'm pretty sure that's still against the rule. <laughs> so <true>. who knows? <laughs> well, uh, hopefully things will go better than they did with the Sunset Advisory Commission because the idea of meeting to take a vote and then gaveling out before taking the vote about how to hold hearings in a pandemic while unsuccessfully holding a hearing in a pandemic is not is not a great indicator for how these things make yeah, up.
4: Things are going well.
1: <laughs> all right. Well that is all we have for you today. As always, thanks to Spoon for our theme music and to our sponsors this week. Effect TV, Guns.com, the Texas Association of Community Colleges, and the Texas Conference for Women. On behalf of Patrick, Cassie and Matthew and our producer Michael Ray, this is Alexa. Thanks for listening. <laughs>